Magic Art Workshop. Hello? Hello? Hi. <laughs> this is Danielle. Hi, Danielle. This is Katie. Hi. Nice to meet you. You too. How are you? Good. How are you? Pretty good. I'm, I'm getting over a cold, so I'm going to try to keep my stuffiness to a minimum. But okay. <laughs> and Danny's typing in the background at this moment, so. Okay. Hi, Danielle. Hi. We're just waiting on one more person. Okay. Uh, well, while we wait, Daniel, like, where are you in the world right now? I'm in Chicago. Cool. Okay. Which, yeah. uh, I was in Chicago once for like 36 hours. Which part of the city are you in? Uh, like Wicker Park. Okay. Cool. I stayed in, um, oh, colloquially, uh, uh, Bucktown, I believe is what it was called. Yeah, that's basically where I am. Oh, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Did you say with friends or? Hi. Hello. Hi, it's Ashley. Hi, Ashley. Hi, is that Katie? Yep, it's me. Okay, you no. just sound different over the phone. <laughs> oh yeah, I also have a little bit of a cold going on, so that it's making my my radio voice not as sultry, I guess. <laughs> but um no Danielle I, I went to Chicago for um uh I went for graduate portfolio day and that was like okay. like a zillion years ago and it was when um Airbnb had just started and we stayed in this woman's living room for like 20 bucks for four of oh, us <laughs> it was kind of one of those like we were like wait what's wrong with your house because this is really cheap Anyways, mm-hmm. it was really funny, but <laughs> but hi Ashley, how are you? Oh, I'm doing good. Just working and trying to <clears throat> survive in small town America. <laughs> oh well, I I know you you. It seems like you feel frustrated with it sometimes, but I miss small town America. I was actually trying to figure out a way to come visit you. Oh, like, thank you. It's um. It's not too bad, just there's parts of it where I just go, I'm surrounded by people who support people politically that I'm not inclined to, and it's frustrating, but otherwise it's beautiful here, so I don't knock that at least. Totally. No, that's what I miss about my back home. Like, I miss my fam and, like, driving around at night, and then, um, like, today in the newspaper it was like, oh, local imperialist dragon of the KKK was found dead by the Missouri River, and I was just like, oh, I don't miss that. (laughs) (laughs) that's not something I miss (laughs) all right Danny are you are you done typing are you ready I am I am ready to go Ashley where are you at right now are you in Missouri no I'm in Roseburg Oregon oh okay all right so I I will start then. Um, so this is Confab with Katie Pyatt through Dialogic Art Workshop. Um, it's me, Katie, and then we have Danny and Hi. Danielle. Ooh, sorry. Danny. Hi. <laughs> and Danielle. Hi. And Ashley. 
Hi. <laughs> and so I'm just going to let you guys start the snowball rolling. What are you thinking about? Well, I was just thinking about how I'm sort of a bad student because I didn't get to watch all the videos. And so I feel a little bit bad about that. But I really enjoyed um, the the first episode, at least, in the opening credits of your YouTube channel. Um, and I thought it was the um, the conversation between you and Danny about cremation and, like, <laughs> um, and like, like, putting makeup on people and then having that turn into color in fireworks was um, pretty inventive and, and hilarious. Thank you. That was so much fun. He was my very first interview, and that story was actually pulled right from the headlines of my hometown newspaper, like, the day before. Oh, really? Yeah, that's a real thing. Like, for a starter, mm. there's this place called Green Lawn Funeral Home, and for a starter pack of uh, crema- cremation fireworks is like $700, but you get like Roman candles and <laughs> it's wild. That's funny. I thought it was hilarious too when Danny was like, um, the first time you're cremated is just sad and uh, sad, and then the second time is the celebration. Yeah, like cre- <laughs> cremated twice. <laughs> <laughs> so, Katie, for those, um, you just kind of assigned people, like, I don't even remember how you introduced that character to me. Ooh, so my my go-to for, for that was basically I would have a person who came into the studio. Like, at first it was like, a willing person. And then after that it was like, no, anybody who comes in, I'm going to challenge them to come have an interview with me. But, um... I would just make up your name on the spot. I would have a story already prepared, something from the newspaper that we were going to talk about in my head. And then, because if you watch the video, there's a pin in my shoe and I'm holding a piece of paper and that's got all the stories written on it from the newspaper. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just made up your name in my head. Oh, I'm sorry. You go ahead. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Um, I made up your name, and then I would let you pick, like, your costume. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then kind of introduce, like, I would ha- I would interview you, but I would lead the conversation, like, this is Pamela, and she owns such and such. We're going to talk about it today. So then you would, um, like, as a participant would know your story, so you wouldn't be, like, dead set on having to create it by yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, <clears throat> for me, that's definitely, I mean, I like improv like that. I, I enjoy coming up with really detailed sort of lies on the spot that involve comedy. Um, and so, I mean, I think I've seen some of the other videos, but did you did you find that the conversations were... Um, like mine, I guess, like where you were dealing with people that brought up a lot of stuff and that, or, or how, how did those conversations go? Um, it's interesting. It was like, it was a mix. I would have people who, 
And this happened when I did this on live on stage two at a performance mm-hmm. festival. They would come up to me after and be like, I would never have done that before. I'm so shy. Or like, I hate being a participant or like, I hate being picked on to come do things. But like, you made it so easy. And in those people saying that had just done like the most lively conversation I'd ever seen on stage. And so, oh, go ahead. How do you think you got that out of them? Um, I've been, for lack of a better phrase, I've been told that I'm a very generous interviewer. That I, like, and, and that was part of my plan, too. Like, I know some people, like, you know, walk in with Jay Leno or something like that, where they just put people on the spot to make them look dumb for their videos later. I don't like that. I want an organic experience with a person I don't know, but I don't want to freak them out and just be like, come up with something. And also that would be a lot of dead air. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a generous interviewer, like what are some of your techniques? Um, I, I start out with your name and what you do. And then um, if it seems like you've forgotten any of those things while we're talking, I'll just bring them out. I'll be like, so Pamela, now while you do this job, you also like, and then I'll make up some other hobby or something. So then it's like reiterating, like you do that. So then maybe you'll be like, I do do that. And then you'll talk about it more. I'm trying to think if I have any specific techniques. I just feel, I think about like what I would want, if I was a nervous person coming on stage, what I would want to be treated like, definitely like a partner and not like a prop, for sure. Right. And I think you're trying to build uh, a relationship with your audience, even, Mm -hmm. even like maybe future audiences. So you're you're trying to to establish trust in I think your performances, and um, you do that by I think you sort of take on the um, uncomfortableness of performance if that has to be taken on in some way, you know, like um, uh, like the. Stone, what's that gentleman's name? The Stone. Cherry Stone. Ken oh, Cherry Stone. Ken Cherry Stone. Yeah. yeah. There are moments in that where, you know, you've got, you've got an audience that you are definitely separate from, right? Like, there's no costume way of accessing you like there is in Springfield today. Oh, yeah. No, Ken Cherry Stone is very... Um, closed off I would almost describe him as like a a storm like he just blows through the room taking any and all people and property with him <laughs> like uh, I, I just for Ashley and Danielle Ashley were you saying that you didn't get a chance to watch the videos because that video is pretty long um, um, he said that it wasn't me, but oh. I also didn't get a chance to watch the video. Sorry. Okay, your guys, y- your voices both sound similar, so I'm going to <laughs> try not to do that. But um, no, yeah, that video is pretty long. But essentially, this character of mine, uh, I created to host the opening of a gallery show, and like 
I roast everything in the room, and then while doing that, just, like, overly grope people and be really, like, aggro, famous male. Mm-hmm. And so that's uh, the character to which Danny's referring, but... Although I... Yeah, I, I, I've seen... Even though I haven't seen the videos, I've seen some descriptions that you've written and that other people have written about the events that that character is in present at. So... Um, the more you describe it, the more I'm familiar with which character that is. Um, and I always thought that that was an interesting concept. And I'm sad that I haven't seen the videos yet now. I regret it. <laughs> <laughs> the the videos could be better because it was my first time doing it. And as um, a femme person playing this, like, aggro male, it was really hard for me to be gropey and assertive. And I even had, like, the the person from PSU who asked me to do the show with them was just like, touch people more. And I was like, but uh, I don't, they don't want, like, they don't want to be touched. That's their right to not want to be touched. And she's like, is that what the character is saying? It's like, no. <laughs> so that was really hard to get into. I think it's kind of interesting that Ken Terry Stone is, um, I only saw a little bit of that video, but in it, it seemed like that character was really specifically focused on um, its own position, his own position. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the dialogue was always kind of, even in the beginning, his monologue was just like all about him and his experience, even though he was standing in front of a, like a work of art that he was so, sort of supposed to speak to. And that seems kind of counter to an interview process. So it's interesting to me that you're kind of incorporating these two ways of communicating um, that are kind of diametrically opposed mm-hmm. in these different projects. I don't know if you see it that way, but um, I just wonder I ha- about that. I hadn't seen it in those specific terms, but I really appreciate you saying that because that character specifically was birthed from uh, the idea of, like, I want to make this roast character. Who am I thinking about? And essentially it, that was, a time when Adam Sandler was just shitting out more not good comedy on Netflix. And it was just like, <laughs> God damn, like how, how much can this person be bad at things and still receive jobs when there are so many comedians out there who are like not his friends that mm-hmm. are amazing, not getting jobs. And so it was really that idea of like this male interviewer but not really interviewer more of like a male orator who is very forcibly always talks about his like heterosexuality which is questionable from the jokes he makes and then always talk his his past fame is very shifty you're not really sure why or how he's famous you just kind of accept it and I feel like that we do that in popular culture so much with the famous, like, male comedian. Yeah, and we make a lot of room for their voices. Like, I think that seems like an interesting, you know, way of looking at it, too. Like, that even if what they're saying, they're just sort of taking up space um, without thinking too much about it, um, we make room for that culturally in ways that we don't always for a lot of other people. Totally, and that's why it was such a challenge for me to play, like, grope more, be more like disgusting in your monologue because I have that conditioning in me to not take up space like that, Mm -hmm. like that, I don't know, born, born male arrogance that you just learn. 
you know, as a woman, it's like I don't have that at all. <laughs> Except in your performance work. You know? Oh, totally. I, I think that is um, like a consistent experiment for me is testing my body's limits of comfortability for sure. But like the whole time I'm doing it, like afterwards, I'll be like, that was so successful. And you like ride the wave of like, I did good and I took up space. And then like the next day, it's like, oh, my God, I took up so much space. And I was probably really like aggressive and conceited. And that's not good. And then it's it's, it's kind of a challenge, actually, to be that way on stage I've been really wrestling with it I think that's that's why my work gets made I think is because it's like I'm gonna try to see if I can do this on stage or, or in a gallery well are you what's one the thing that I felt okay. like sorry go ahead <laughs> sorry <laughs> No, everyone was talking at once. Yeah. <laughs> we should all take a turn just, or something. Here, I'll just briefly, I was just going to say, I think that your, the fact that you're sort of uncomfortable with it is very, well, is not necessarily present in the work, but there is an awkwardness in the work that I think hints to or lets the steam out of that for you, you know? Um, I mean, there's like, like bad wigs and like <laughs> poorly made props and and these things that come together to kind of um, take the the grandness out of this these male um, MCs. Totally, that would that actually is the through line. Probably I never thought about it like that for Ken as well as George Washington, like the idea of like the DIY show but also like DIY fame. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you, well, both of you had thoughts too. One of you go now. <laughs> um, I was just going to bring out Annie, old Annie, because you're talking a lot about how, forgive me, I'm not very familiar with this character, so I'm going to refer to him as this character. This other character that's sort of the male version of show business where you, you don't know why he's famous, but mm-hmm. he is famous, and he goes around acting the way that he does. And then you have old Annie, who is sort of very much the opposite, not just in gender, of course, but just in attributes. Like, I've seen a lot of your old Annie videos because I love that character. And watching them, she's, she's outgoing, and she's going and living her life, but she's very still sort of, like, reserved, and she's very quiet, and it really brings forward this idea of the male counterpart of show business versus the female counterpart and sort of what is, what happens to them as either they get older or as they become famous. Wow. Um, okay, <laughs> it, was going. That, it was just something that I had noticed while we were talking a little bit more about this because I have seen a lot of the old Annie ones and a lot of the old Annie videos are more quiet. They're more reserved. And they, in a way, like, as a piece, they're really powerful and they impact a lot, but they also take up less space than these other videos with the male counterpart in, in show business. Does that make sense? That's so interesting. 
thank you for that thought. I never thought about it that way. Because old Annie feels like a part of me, whereas Ken Cherrystone feels like the anti-Katie. <laughs> and so... Pretty much, because, yeah. <laughs> like, connecting them together is so interesting. I am going to put that in the Rolodex in my brain and come back to it because that is amazing. Thank you. Yeah, of course. It was just something I noticed while hearing you guys talk about this other character that I'm not as familiar with, but thinking of the one that I do know. Yeah. Danielle, for, um, and, and for everybody that's listening later, um, old Annie is this character and it's funny cause I didn't include her on my PDF. Um, because she also uses participants sometimes, but in, like, a a more quiet way, I guess. O- old Annie is an effigy of, like, if little orphan Annie got old and Daddy Warbucks died, like, what would she, and she's poor, what would she do with her life now as an adult? And also kind of, like, this idea of, like, how we toss women of a specific, quote-unquote, age in show business and we just get new ones. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so she she goes on crazy adventures. Well, I guess what are some of the adventures she goes on? Um, she I I gotta bring her out again. It's been like two years since she's done anything. But like when Danny and I were in Canada, she went and got a tattoo, which was an episode. And then she there was the visiting Banff, Alberta, the episode. And then there was the um, using the BAMP Center gym, all the equipment incorrectly, which was an episode. <laughs> and then there was the time I crashed the Whitney Biennial in New York. Was Both an of those episode. are my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And then there's like a short of me rapping, like rap lip syncing to It's a Hard Knock Life, the Jay-Z version. And and then there's the really old rough cut of me in my old apartment when all my roommates went to sleep. And I was like, I got to do something with this weird dress that I bought. And that was like the first time that she came out as a character. Well, I think the reason you probably didn't include Annie is because there's not like um, an interaction with her like there is in these with these other characters. Yeah, um, like Annie doesn't speak. She doesn't exist like as a thing that the audience gets to mess with mm, mm-hmm. or talk to. But it also seems maybe like a question of context because it, she doesn't really exist on a stage or she's not performing within a gallery. So the the audience interaction would be sort of different. True. I did always have this idea with her to do um, something called uh, Annie Hours, like at a gallery, where I would just be there as her and like awkwardly interact with people, but still following the rules, like I don't talk as her. So it would be because like one time I was walking uh, around on Times Square as her interacting with people, but totally not speaking. And so, like, everybody would just be like, like, it was like, you'd be recognized instantly, like, Annie, like, why is your hair gray now? And I would just, like, kind of shrug, like, you know, that's what happens. 
<laughs> and then we take a picture together. Anyways, se- uh, tangent and segue, but I have always wanted to do Annie hours at gallery at, at a gallery with Annie where it would be like I I don't know, almost like reading hours or like visiting hours, but it would just be like you come to the gallery and here's Annie and she could show you the work. And I could actually work with Ken too, like Ken hours at a gallery where I would roast work. But these are things that are still in the idea pool because I've never done them before. So for you, I wonder if there's um, if one character feels more compelling than the other, or if they have. Um, they feel really different, or if you could talk about like how you decide which character you're using in what context and um, how that might change how you interact with participants. Um, I think for each character, it goes back to the experiment in body. And so it's like, like Annie was the first time I ever like really let my belly stick out on camera as like a a fat power challenge. And then Ken would be a challenge of like groping people and dealing with this idea of like uh, uh, toxic masculinity and how I feel about it. And so I would say that the character is a body challenge for sure, no matter what. And then the what what they do or what they talk about or who they interact with depends on the theme of the project. Like my uh, most recent work coming up is going to be a show about male fragility. And so I'm going to pick very interesting participants for that, I think. And that'll actually be an interesting thought process for me because it'll be like, how how am I going to pick them? Am I going to stereotype them when I pick them? It's going to be very... I'm going to have to tread lightly there. If that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I was just kind of curious to hear you talk about it. Um, and I think it does seem kind of like an interesting challenge in terms of how you select participants. Um, and what you're, I don't know if you like ever considered establishing kind of rules or criteria around that that would shift the, um, the interaction. Um, well, you know, I wonder about. I do have a weird criteria for myself um, that I invented when I went on residency at the BAMP Center where I met Danny Volk. And um, it's that before I left, I made up this criteria because I am such, I'm an, ex, I'm an extroverted introvert. And oftentimes I will... Uh, I'll see an artist or somebody after a show and I'll be like, they're so cool. I want to ask them all these questions. And I'll be like, but you're kind of weird and they don't want to hear your questions. You shouldn't say anything. And so I made this, uh, used to be that would be the law and I wouldn't do anything because of the that weird thought. And then I made this criteria before I went on this residency, like, okay, if I think that at all in any way that someone's going to think I'm weird or they're not going to want to talk to me, then I have to do it. And it created the best results. Like I have, I've met so many interesting people just from me challenging my 
oh, well, obviously, like, you're not good enough, or you're not cool enough, or, like, whatever that voice comes up with that day, you know, the one in your head. And if it said anything like that at all, it would be like, okay, well, now I have to do it. Because it's like a, I call it my bet with myself, and I'm not one to lose a bet. <laughs> so. That seems like a really productive way of um, kind of interacting with people, too. Like not making assumptions about how they're going to feel about you before you even start speaking. Like I think we all do that in different ways, but. Thanks. Yeah, it was just kind of like you're going to throw all this weird inner dialogue aside and just go, t like, that'll probably, you know, like, think of it in the reverse. Like, if they came up to me and were like, oh, I loved your work or the thing you said or I think, I just think you're cool, you would love that in reverse. That would make your whole day. So, like, you can't keep that from them on the off chance that, like, maybe they're like, oh, I am really cool and I can't talk to you. Because, like, who's really like that? <laughs> mm -hmm. You know? So it, it was it has been something that has really driven um, my performance practice for sure. I'm just going to be quiet because I don't want to monopolize all the questions. I have more questions, but I feel like Aww. I'm going to be quiet. <laughs> Um, I actually had a question, and, and part of it is because um, I met KD through this particular performance, and I've I, I've discussed it with with you, KD, and I've um, asked a few questions regarding this, and I've seen you discuss this. But how did the piece that was at the Commons in um, PNCA? Mm -hmm. uh, was I'm looking at the PDF um, and, and checking out the name. It's uh, Press Conference of My Life. I never knew the actual name before. Um, I know that that was part of your uh, intro to performance class. And how did that shape the idea of storytelling? And um, I guess how did that shape your idea of storytelling as a way to do your performances and to bring people um, to come and, and listen to you speak, because even though I know your art isn't necessarily about like talking at people, but um, mm -hmm. it is in a way about like saying something, because that's a lot of what your work is, is talking. How did that shape your concept that, that, that getting people involved by talking to them and talking with them, like how did that shape that? Oh man, that is a damn fine question. Um, that, I think it's a twofold answer. That performance was born of David Eckerd's beginning uh, intro to performance class. And we had to do this, like, it's like our final was like, do a five-hour endurance piece in the commons of PNCA. And all semester I had struggled in his class because <clears throat> as part of his curriculum, you're not allowed to speak until, like, the last month of the semester in your performances. And it was so hard for me to um, just rely on my body and movement, I would start to get really like critical of, of my fat body, which was helpful because it's like, well, why is your fat body bad or good? You know, keep doing it. But I've never considered myself in the traditional vein of performance art where it's like you, I don't know. I always just use the example of like where you, you know, pour honey on your naked body and it means this. Like, 
I, I just, I don't run that way. And I, I tried to be that person in his class once and he was just like, no, this doesn't make sense for you. So when it was like, right, he, he, he gives the best critical information, but in like a non-devastating way. Um, so with this, what am I going to do for this final piece? It's like, you know, how many ever percent of my grade? What am I going to do? And so I came up with this idea because we had to have, we had a criteria of like it had to have props and it had to be in the way of people in some way and you had to do it for five hours. And so it was kind of like, okay, well, it's that time of the semester where I can use my voice. Who can talk longer than five hours than me? I mean, my mom, but that's just, just us two. So, so I was like, okay, what? would I do in front of people? Well, a safety would be to talk about my own life because no one can say, well, that's not true, you know? So I set up this area in the commons where it was like a table and chairs. People would walk through. They would have to walk through. And when they did, I would be like, what's your next question? Thank you so much for coming. And at first they were like, what? And then it was like, then we started having this dialogue and this conversation. It helped me twofold. It helped me pass his class, and it helped me discover how much I really loved to interview. It was kind of a backwards interview then because they were asking me questions. But it helped me understand how I like to interview people and how I like to monologue about myself because – all that whole semester at PNC, that was my very first semester in grad school, Nan Curtis, my mentor, was just like, you need to do a monologue. And I would be like, but I'm not like a theater person. I've never done anything like that. Is it valid as a work? And, of course, it's Nan Curtis, so she would, like, punch me in my legs and tell me to fuck off and that it was valid. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was a really – it was a big push to – try to, I don't know, just kind of get a, a, my sea legs in front of a, a crowd as both an artist and possibly an entertainer, which is my newest goal is to uh, kind of prove the idea that when people say comedy can't be a fine art, kind of prove that wrong because I get that a lot in, in critical discussions with people. Well, I guess I wonder a bit about, like, um, the relationship between comedy and fine art. And, um, you know, I feel like that is something I see a lot in a lot of contemporary work. I think about, mm -hmm. like, even in Chicago, like, the readers, for example, even if they're making objects, it's kind of like they have this comedic structure that intersects with it. And um, I don't know. I just wonder, like, like, you know, what you think about that tension and if that, that is useful and... Um, where it comes from. I think that, and I, this is me, what do I want to say? When I was in my grad class, I received a lot of flack if I was entertaining at all or comedic at all. During critiques, it would be like, well, Katie, you made us laugh or you entertained us, so, like, how would you present this in a fine art form? Like, it was very um, kind of, 
one one sided or one uh, uh, sectioned off of like, oh, well, we laughed, so it's not fine art anymore. And it would really grind my gears because I was doing these really awkward sketches about my mom's pregnancy story with me. And so it <laughs> it was funny because it was really sad and awkward. But also it was like really uh, a dialogue about her struggle with having this second child with my dad and my dad only wanted to have boys. And like, obviously I came out as not boy and how they dealt with that as a couple. And I was playing both parts at the same time. Like I would, I would stuff pillows in my shirt to be her when she was pregnant. And then when I was dad, I would take them off and sit on them like really (laughs) really aggressive and um I'm, I'm tangenting but uh I would just receive these comments that were like oh well we laughed or like it was kind of slapstick so like obviously it's not fine art anymore and I thought you know at first I thought maybe it was just my peers at school or maybe it was school but I I noticed that comes up in conversation every now and then depending on who the artist is is that like if comedy is present at all or like if it's comedy and not used as like the word humor, if it's comedy or, or, or comedic or stand-up or entertainment, then it's considered almost like easy or, or more accessible maybe, um, but not fine art. And I think we're, it's interesting because we're in this meta age where everything is like satirical. Like, everything's a satire of everything, almost to the point where I have a hard time having real emotions about some things, because I'm like, well, this has been done before, you know? But um, I lost sight of your question. I'm trying to get back to it. I think I, I want to prove that they can be merged comedy as fine art, fine art as comedy, but I also find myself specifying to people that I am a comedian and a storyteller instead of an artist. And so I wonder if language creates that barrier sometimes. Because, like, it, it's almost like the word feminist, like how some people are just turned off by that word, and it's like we need a new word. It's I find myself being like, I'm a comedian more so than, like, I'm an artist, but overall I view myself as an artist, if that makes any sense. It does, and I guess I wonder, like, um, if – if you feel uncomfortable calling yourself an artist because of the tension between fine art and comedy, um, or if it's something else. You know, interestingly enough, a year ago, I would have been uncomfortable calling myself a comedian. So (laughs) it's kind of come with personal growth of these different, I, I don't know. I kind of view it in an Andy Kaufman sense, like Andy Kaufman so famously only called himself a song and dance man instead of a comedian. And so I wonder if if it's personal preference for me or if it is my feelings about the art world, I guess. Because I'm comfortable now as a comedian and storyteller, but a year ago I would have been like, I'm an artist who does storytelling. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I kind of feel like there is a lot of space being made for comedy in fine art, um, and I, you know, I don't know, I'm not, I don't have your practice or anything, but I definitely feel like I see, see a lot of work that's really engaged with that and kind of bridging different worlds, even of like stand up or, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like that. And I think it's a matter of like, 
I think the language problem seems interesting because I feel like it is a matter of context and how these performances are kind of bracketed or the framework that that people will, will discuss them through or view them through, which changes how we receive them. Totally. Um, I think that the, I, I, it's my quest right now to get reacquainted with my local art scene because I kind of cut myself off there for a while. The end of grad school was really hard and it kind of burned me out of just anything in the, to do with the white box. And so mm-hmm. it's been two, almost two years, which freaks me out to say that but you can't see my face, so it's okay. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm in a mission right now to reacquaint myself with Portland's art scene and, like, the different galleries and what they're doing. Because I, I agree with you. I think there is, like, a comedy influx or, like, a, a humor influx in art. And I think, especially in these weird political times, that's the, the most some of us can do is to challenge the regime but also challenge the regime of the white box by being like i'm not gonna have a flat panel painting i'm gonna make a word painting instead and like i also think it helps because i used to be a docent many moons ago and the number one thing that people would tell me when i was docenting uh was i don't know if i can have an opinion about this because i'm not an artist and i I think that's such a bummer because it's like you mm-hmm. can have an opinion about anything. I mean, you know, there's going to be those people that are like, oh, this is bullshit, but they can't tell you why. And that's a bummer. But to have a person really, really think that they, they're not allowed to have an opinion because they're not an artist is kind of a loss of um, commentary. I mean, I think that also goes hand in hand with the idea of like, you know, as we saw the presidential debates this year, like the art of conversation is almost, it's it's dying. It's on its deathbed and we need to bring it back because people are forgetting how to challenge each other in conversation uh, with ideas instead of just being like, Oh, her emails. Oh, his bad hair or whatever, you know? I don't know. I'm excited to see what pops up in in the community in the future with conversation and comedy and art. I also wonder about comedy as a kind of escape. I mean, I'm not engaged in, you know, personally, I don't, like do stand up or even go to see live comedy very often. Um, but I really love, like, I feel like since Trump's been elected, I've not missed an episode of SNL. Um, and I think it has been really helpful. And I think um, it seems like maybe that's something you, you're working with or towards in your practice too, where um, comedy can be a way to kind of get away from the elitism in art um, or mm-hmm. the sort of implied elitism in art. Um, and I wonder if that's something you think about or that you're engaged with. No, totally. Like at first, comedy was an escape from my turbulent childhood slash religious upbringing and then therapy and, and just talking about it you know, that's now it's more like I share my weird stories and my 
possibly outlandish political standings because I want an audience to know that like they're not alone in those ideas. And I think that's really important as we resist to have someone be like, this is really weird and crazy. And like, like Melissa McCarthy as Sean Spicer is not only comedic and brilliant, but it's also kind of like a giant middle finger to a regime that it doesn't really respect women. And so to have this woman acted out, it's, it's, Mm-hmm. It's like a threefold piece. Like I always tell people this about old Annie. I love old Annie because she, you can, uh, overall audiences, we can talk about how silly she is and how weird she is and like how funny it is when she uses exercise equipment wrong. But then there's a, a twofold layer of like, we can also talk about the politics of uh, women in show business and how, at a specific demographic age, TV just kind of throws you away. You know, like women over 35 are not on television that often, and it's a loss, and that's something I wanted to get at with that character. So I think that comedy comedy is an escape, but smart comedy is an escape with, um, I don't know, it's almost like Jonathan Swift's, you know, publication about the English eating their children, like, it's like, oh, my gosh, that would never happen. That's so funny. But then it was like, that's a real document that he made that some people took it serious and some people were like, oh, he's he means the government mm-hmm. or the monarchy, I guess I would say. But uh, I'm t- cold medicine. I'm trailing off. Um, yeah, comedy, it's easy to well, get in. Been- oh, go ahead. It just seems like you're getting at the idea that comedy has a critical edge to it. It's not. It's not necessarily like just a kind of a, a soft escape. It actually can challenge um, uh, kind of hegemonic structures. Totally, and I've actually been my most recent research that I want to start is the idea. There's some theorists out there that say that satire doesn't help because some people can't read it as satire. And I can see that I I agree and disagree. I don't know. What do you, how do you feel about that as a statement? I mean, I don't, I think, I feel like it's, it's quite complicated. Um, I, I think that, it's kind of like when, when I see satirical language and I've seen people kind of take it in the opposite direction, that that seems counterproductive. But I think sometimes it seems like when satire is performed and embodied, it's it uh-huh. I think it's harder to, because you have like two kind of forms of language often, like, you know, verbal language and then a kind of, you know, gesticulation or uh, bodily language, that you, it seems, I think, harder to take it to, to kind of misunderstand it. Right. No, it's interesting because I agree with that. I, it's, it's, I want to delve into it more and see what's been written about it because I agree with what you just said, but I also like that Tina Fey show that came out last year or two years ago called The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. There was like some satirical jokes in there that really got under my skin as a fat woman and I wondered if other people got them 
mm-hmm. or if it was like, oh, it's just like the the joke that I'm talking about is that there was one of the main like female friend characters always ragged about how her husband's secretary is really fat. But then at one point you find out that her husband ran away with his secretary and the the woman just keeps being like, but she's fat. And so like, really, you know, fat woman wins because she got the husband or whatever. But I wonder if other people got that triumph from that or if it's just like, oh yeah, making fun of fat people. Like, I think, um, like, as, as somebody who's, like, delved in and, like, read up on a little bit on the fat politics, I think it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Because, and, I, and I'm not saying Tina Fey maybe thought ahead on this, because um, I don't know if she did, but it's almost like she was like, yeah, the, the fat girl ran away, but here's the thing, like, one of, the, one of the biggest things that I hear from people, like, girls who lose their boyfriend and then they see that they're with another girl and they go, oh man, I feel so much better after seeing her because she was so fat or something. It's kind of one of those things where my inherent thought is to think, wow, you're just going to rejoice in the fact that you think he's less off because he's with a fat person. Right. And so so I remember the scene you're talking about and I think what got me about it was just kind of the inherent thought of kind of, so what if she's fat, you know? Um, so maybe I didn't read it the same way that you did. Right. Well, it was like, in my head, I was like, yay, the fat woman won this obviously like desirable man or person and she wins. But then this other character's treatment of that, like you wonder if somebody else is going to get, understand that subtlety or if they're just going to be like, Oh yeah, like like you said, like oh yeah, fat person, what? And then that's the end of it. And it it just right. it rubbed it rubbed me the wrong way. And that's where I would uh, that's probably my only argument at the moment for the side that's saying satire doesn't help because I don't think anyone else. Well, okay, I can't say anyone else. I, I I'm sure there are people out there that did not read the subliminal like subliminalness of that joke of like oh well fat girls win or this fat girl won you know it, mm-hmm. it felt it felt very easy as a concept and I was just like no <laughs> yeah I, I definitely see where you're co- where you like went there though and like where you're coming from with how you're describing it though where yeah, you gonna- I totally oh, see that read too I can totally see that read, too. When I watched the show, I mean, first of all, I actually felt like there were a lot of problematic jokes in the show that that had some kind of horrible outcomes, like the um, the doctor, the plastic surgeon, I forgot his name, who they made fun of, who then committed suicide not long after, like, totally that was tragic. Thing. Or the same, uh, the, the same girl who made the fat jokes uh, being, like, secretly Native American, and now she's white. Oh, yeah, yeah that, that, <laughs> that one was super problematic. Yeah, so I felt like the whole show was, like, really, I, I had a lot of problems with it. Um, but I feel that way about comedy a lot of ways, too. Sometimes I'm not, I, I'm not always great with it. Um, but specifically to the joke about the, the, the woman who, uh, who ran away with the, the secretary ran away with the husband, um, I felt like that was more about the woman who was um, 
the, the I forgot her name, that actress, the, the, the character who was, you know, Native American. Um, anyways, I felt like it was more about her kind of self-consciousness and her sort of like fucked up relationship to her own body and all the other women around her, um, even Kimmy, like her kind of competitiveness. Oh, um, that's how that's how I sort of saw it. Um, and her, I that's mean, she had an obsession with like food and exercise that kind of <sighs> took her out of the world in a lot of ways. Yeah. No, you brought up a good point, though, how you're saying that you feel that way about a lot of comedy. I've been struggling with that, too, like as a person who wants to make the best comedy. But there is the idea of the problematics and could they have thought through Kimmy Schmidt more and had less problematic jokes or like, was it one of those? I I don't know. Like I was watching, it's always sunny in Philadelphia the other day. And it was one of those episodes where they just casually do blackface for something. And Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to interview them and be like, what was your, your thought process behind this? Because technically they could be like, Oh, well, these are those characters doing blackface. And obviously the major basis of the show is that all the characters are terrible, horrible asshole people. But at the same time, it's like, but no, you, you know, Rob McElhaney and Charlie Day wrote that in a screen room. Like, so what were you thinking when you wrote that? Because it is problematic. But it is also like, you know, you find yourself secretly laughing at it. So like, do you take risks? And and possibly, was the dialogue about it worth it? Or did you just want to make people, like, laugh secretly because it's a bad, bad joke? I don't know. I've been, I've been struggling with this idea of, like, problematics and really good comedy. I think it's a great, great question. And, um, I mean, I think, you know, is, does a comedian have a responsibility? Like... If you make someone laugh, like, is there, what, I don't know, something, is there, um, is, a, is there a defense needed for that laughter? Like, and, you know, we're talking about things that were scripted and then shot and then edited. So there were many levels of, like, these jokes being thought about and caught and, like, totally. determined. Um, but, you know, I think about live stuff um, and doing live comedy and having these conversations like you're having in public and doing your stand-up. And, you know, in, in, the, in the sort of effort of being humorous, have you ever, like, accidentally made a joke that was inappropriate or or in an interaction, like, made someone feel the target of that joke. You know, like, that's that's really, like, a dread. It's like one of those sort of nightmare situations where you've said something and then you hear it, and you're like, oh, my God, I did not mean it that way. Yeah. I'm doing no. a comedy thing. How do I reverse this? Can you reverse this? Is it your job to what, you know? No, I haven't yet, but it's a fear of mine. Like, in November, um, we had that graduation show I was in this comedy school 
and we had our graduation school, uh, show. It was through this group called Les Stand Up in Portland, and they had a lesbian and queer comedy school. And um, so at our graduation show, one of our teachers was the MC, and she made this joke at the beginning of the show about uh, we – it was one of those, like, donation only. We were hoping to fill a theater. You know, if we could, we ended up selling out the whole theater, standing room only. Uh, it was really cool. But uh, she made this joke at the beginning about how many people showed up and how excited we were. She was saying, you know, we couldn't let anybody else in because the fire marshal would kick us out. And then she's like, you know, the fire marshal was at our last Les stand-up show, and maybe he's just coming after lesbians in Portland. Ha, ha, ha. And so the next day on Facebook, she, on the event, she went on the event and was like, I apologize for that joke. Um, after the show, I had a friend of color tell me about the history of how many times the fire marshal has actually shut down uh, black clubs in Portland, like in the 60s, 70s, and now, just like going in and just shutting it down based on some, you know, BS law about whatever, but a very racially biased shutting down. And she formally apologized on the event page. And then a woman of color commented on there like, yeah, I almost left when you said that, but I came to support someone else. So I stayed and watching that interaction, I was scared, but also humbled because it is the question of, do you, would it be more of a process? Uh, to apologize in front of everyone when that happens or to apologize to yourself. Like, I would most definitely apologize with everyone and start a dialogue about what happened. But there are people that do things like that and then don't really say anything. Or, you know, politically, they say they never did it, which is the new common thing that's happened. But um, it is an interesting question of, like, you're in the moment, you make a joke, and then you learn about this, like, either racial or, or gendered history of the thing you said. I don't know. I'm afraid of doing that, but also excited for the discourse that could happen. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a matter of extent, right? Like, some, in some cases, it's sort of a learning opportunity, um, but it depends on how far it goes. And I think that's maybe where I struggle with comedy is sometimes it just goes, like, way too far. Yeah. No, totally. And then I think there's a difference between, like, making fun of yourself and making fun of, and, you know, um, your kind of, your own um, community and then making fun of people who maybe you don't interact with in the same way or um, who exist outside of your immediate community. And, and, like, so I think Mike Birbiglia is really funny a lot of the time, and that's partially because he just, like, like, there's this skit that he does where he talks about him doing himself doing yoga. And it's, like, really simple and super hilarious. But then I wonder if, like, liking that is, is not giving comedy all of its kind of political opportunity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Can you... I mean, you did elaborate. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Like, if, if do you think in liking that joke that that ends your thought process with it? Is that your question, or, or do you think it goes deeper than that? I think, it's, I think it's deeper than that. Like, what do I expect of comedy, and to what degree can comedy kind of be allowed to um, engage in the problematic politics that we live in? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so in liking Mike Birbiglia and make fun of himself trying to do like pigeon pose, um, I feel like I'm trying to opt out of all of the problems of comedy. Whoa. Okay. It's so hard. <laughs> no, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Like, um, well, all the time, but like when I wrote my thesis, I definitely put this in there, but there was this article on the onion a couple of years ago that was like feminist woman takes break to watch sitcom for 30 minutes. And it felt, it just felt really close to home of like, how can I watch? Like I was watching really bad Matthew McConaughey rom-coms last night. And because, because I was having a sick day and how do you heal but watch these really heteronorm movies? But it's like, it's so interesting to watch them now because you're just like, oh my God, I used to let these movies like rule my life as a teenager and dictate like how I should feel about my body. And now it's hard not to watch them without thinking about like, oh my God, heteronormativity and like she's giving up her career for a man and the problems Mm -hmm. of that. And I think about that Onion article all the time about like, am I just, like you said, in, in laughing in this, am I giving up? the complications of the rest of all of it or or I wonder if there's a way to do both and maybe that's my new challenge for myself Mm -hmm. I I mean sorry go ahead I was just gonna say I feel like this is a really big issue for me like there are a lot of things that I find funny that I would never I wouldn't feel comfortable like talking about here for example you know like but not that but I'm not laughing because I'm laughing at someone or some group or some characteristic I I think I'm laughing because of like how complicated things are and like maybe laughter is the only way is, is a way for me to digest it but but laughter is seen so specifically in the public sphere, you know, as either like derision or superiority. And so it's, I think it's very complicated. And yeah. I think it's great that, you know, you're trying to use it um, in this way that potentially subverts these things that you oppose. You know, like Ken Cherrystone for one thing. Thank you. <laughs> I um no, I had a person on Facebook a few months ago um, say something. It was a thread about comedy. I forget, but they were just like, do you think it's a privileged position to even be able to enjoy comedy? And then, like, I started discussing it, and then another person came in, and another person came in, and some people were very, like, affronted by this idea, but I thought it was really interesting. And then that person that brought it up, like, secret messaged me, like, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to start with, and I was like, no, this is so interesting, because you have to have a point of, I don't know, rest, or just to be able to look at things and be like, oh my God, everything is so horrible, but I can laugh at this or I can make fun of that. It, it kind of feels like there's a paradox in there. Almost like that, you know, which came first, the music or the misery? Like, is comedy a privilege and how do we delve through it? I don't know. Anyways, I think it, there's something there and I've been 
meaning to research more on everything we just talked about. One thing that throughout you guys talking about like the concept of problematic jokes and things like that, um, <laughs> I've, I've come to a point where I'll look at a joke and there's some jokes that are coming up that you just laugh at because you know, oh wow, that's awful because it's true and that's what makes it funny is the fact that the joke itself is so awful, not because it's problematic and that it's racist or anything like that, for example, but it's a joke about racism. And so I've been seeing a lot more jokes about racism come up. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's been an interesting concept because thinking back on it, I don't laugh at them because they're just funny in general, but I, I'm more laughing about the concept that it's kind of sad that this happens and it's true. Kind no. of like a sarcastic kind of funny. I hope I'm making sense. No, totally. I have a show coming up in two weeks and it is... It's like an art event, and there's going to be, like, 2D art and music and audio and comedy, and they asked me to come do a set, and all the proceeds are going to go to Black Lives Matter, so I've been thinking about telling jokes about white people, and my very first question to myself is, am I allowed to do that? Tell jokes about white people. What are the white people in the room going to feel like? Is that just as divisive as if I told jokes about black people but then it's like if you come from the perspective of whiteness being a, a state of mind because white is not a race it's a state of mind it's like you know I'm if you're European then that's your race but not you know what I mean like whiteness is a power model so if I tell jokes about it I don't know it's going to be the most risky set I will have done in recent time and I'm really nervous about it but also kind of excited because if I fuck up it'll start a either way it'll start a discourse about it and I think that's something that comedy actually is a very good tool for because some people may make a joke thinking it's funny but then it's super problematic and then it brings up this discussion of why is this thing that either we've reached we used to find funny or things that I guess in a sense we were allowed to think was funny because you can think of like things like race, for example, jokes about race. People didn't stand up the same way that they do, I think, currently, at least mm -hmm. in my previous memory. So the concept of what we used to find funny versus what we're allowed to find funny is an interesting thing to explore. And I think that that is also sort of territory you tread with that. Um, so how do you, what do you think about that idea of like the concept of what we were maybe allowed to find funny because we just got away with it and nobody said anything versus what we like can't find funny now because we don't get away with it anymore and people um, speak up against it. And I guess maybe saying get away with it is not the right term, but. I mean, I think it, I think get away with it is a suitable term. It's like the most recent piece of garbage interview that Clint Eastwood and his son had with, I forget which publication it was, but Clint Eastwood was saying like this whole generation recently is a quote unquote pussy generation because back in his day, nobody was this offended. And it's like, well, sweetheart, back in your day, people were being blasted with hoses for like very specific reasons, but it was just the norm and nobody said anything. And like, now you're mad that people are saying things. 
Um, I think, I think in, in their, what do I want to say? Like comedy helps to create discourse. And if I were to go do, um, I don't know, like a, you know, a dead, a dead joke, like a, a classic, I don't know. I hate like those jokes that are just so over, like, Oh, I, I hate when my husband, you know, when my wife takes all my money out of my wallet because I worked all day. Like, those are just so old. It, <laughs> yeah. It, it challenge. I think it challenges people to, like, in watching those heteronormative rom-coms last night, it's like, where is a movie about a fat goddess who, like, doesn't need a man to survive or live or be happy or it's not always about I'm going to get married and have children, which is like always the base goal in those movies. I think Mm -hmm. in, in making those tired jokes, like one of my favorite shows of all time to study is all in the family from um, the seventies because my father growing up, my father thought uh, that the main character, the like really racist aggro dad Archie Bunker, he didn't understand that it was satire. He just thought he was a real character. And so, like, hmm. in there's, like, an episode where Archie Bunker kisses, uh, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. kisses Ar- Archie Bunker on the face, and Sammy Davis Jr. is black. And, like, my dad was just as shocked as Archie Bunker, the character, when that happened. And so what I'm getting at, what I'm getting at I guess I'm saying, is that uh, when those die in the wool old jokes like that are made it challenges people who don't live that specific life or traditionalist lifestyle it challenges them to make comedy about their life like one of the sets I've always wanted to write and do on stage is the idea of my queer sex life with my partner and like we were both queer and we're both fat and like what does queer fat sex look like and the jokes about it Cause you know, uh, we just only ever hear about like, I I don't know. I feel like it's a lot of hetero sex jokes happening or like hetero marriage jokes happening, you know? So like, I think it's a challenge for people who are outside of that quote unquote norm to start making jokes or, or making statements. That was a long winded answer, but I think it challenges people to speak up. And that's something that I would agree with, that it's the concept of creating the discourse that you were mentioning. It definitely goes along with that idea. Totally. I think it also is an interesting, like, way of thinking about, I think there's a lot of um, discussion right now about the, about policing of language and the kind of um, language of political correctness. And um, I think there's a really fine line between between language of political correctness and language that is, you know, simply discriminatory or hateful. Mm. Um, And Zizek actually, I think, takes a pretty interesting position where he says that um, the language of political correctness is kind of damaging because um, it cuts off dialogue. And so what he's arguing for is that comedy actually does open up dialogue and being able to... um, laugh together is a much more productive form of kind of exposing um, problematic structures. Totally. Like um, 
that's why I love the idea of the interview so much because it's 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 bringing you closer to another person and I don't know, like, when um, all that stuff in Ferguson, Missouri was happening, that was, like, two hours from my hometown. And so when I went back home to visit for a summer, I would ask all my mom's friends at the bingo parlor, who are, like, 70-plus, what they thought about it and what they thought particularly about, like, cops and, and black teens and... And then when they would give their answers, which were usually 100% like backing up cops, I would ask them, well, why did they feel that way? And it, I think I agree with you where political correctness, I don't even like that as a term. It's, it's like people getting offended and not explaining their side or letting the other person explain their side. Like when I argue with someone on the internet, unless I'm like in a really bitchy mood and just feeling like being mean, cause you know, it's really easy to be mean to people you don't know, which is really awful to say, but I always have this rule for myself in a debate. If you make fun of the other person's character at all, you resign the debate and they win because if, if you throw their character under the bus in any way to prove your point, your point is null and void. Even if you're for the most liberal progressive ideas, if you call them a name or like this whole last election with just calling people bigots, but not explaining like what a bigot actually is Mm -hmm. was really interesting. And I think, um, I'm so sorry, you guys, I am just, I've been drinking NyQuil all day. Um, (laughs) I just think, uh, I don't know, I think the idea of political correctness is kind of gross. Like, it's it's not, it should be more like conversations and the idea of the interview. Like, where, so you have these particular feelings. Where do they come from? Why do you believe in them? You know, and sometimes when you ask particular people those questions, you can just watch their, their answers. It's like a, a plane crashing slowly. You know, well, why do fat women deserve X, Y, Z? And they can't explain it because they just believe in the commonality or, or the pop culture reference that fat women are no good, but they can't explain that to you. So it just, it's like watching a plane slowly crash into a field, just like, psh, cause they can't explain it. So I think comedy and conversation challenge those feelings. Anyways, diatribe. Well, no, that's interesting. I, I feel like explaining it, like that there's an interesting thing that I've seen when I'm talking to people that I disagree with um, and we're sort of debating about some of these issues. Um, I think one thing that I see happen too is that if they have to explain it, then it would mean that they would sort of have to basically have a, an ontological shift. Like they would, they would have to see the world differently um, because if they were going to, if they were trying to like really kind of see the things from your perspective or from the other side of the situation. So, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is like the question that you posed about, um, like why, why fat women or, um, anyone really deserves something that's, um, you know, lesser than something else. 
um, often I think it's like, well, or why are feminists hags? <laughs> it's like, well, if you have to examine that, then you have to examine your relationship to patriarchy. And a lot of women don't want to do that because they would have to change their whole life. No, totally. Like I just recently had to explain white male privilege to my own brother and he got really offensive or defensive, I guess I should say, because like you said, it would be him literally having to, it's almost like when you're in art school and the teacher says like, okay, walk away from the drawing and look at it. And it's so hard to pull away from that work you've been working on for hours and hours and hours. And like, imagine having to do that with your life after living this specific life for 30 years. And being told, like, well, no, actually, it's different. I think people mm-hmm. have a really... A lot... Go Bye, ahead. Katie. No, you go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I think I said it quickly because I got excited, but there's this thing that I had read recently. There's a couple of things I'm reading recently about why people get so affronted when you confront them with an opposing view. Mm-hmm. Like in this case, um, talking to a white male about... Um, toxic masculinity or the patriarchy or any of that stuff and they suddenly get very defensive about it. What it is is part of it is I think feeling like they belong to that group so automatically by talking about their group that way. You're talking about them because that's part of their identity. But moreover, when you confront somebody with something about their identity that's opposite of what they believe in or opposite of what they know about themselves, people get generally defensive just because it's a natural human instinct or reaction, I suppose I could say more so that we do, we do, we, how do I phrase this? <laughs> we, we suddenly get up in arms because it's like a, a reaction to being opposed to our own identity. Mm-hmm. It's just something that we do because by telling a male, like a male that, you know, um, or I guess you could even say white female, by talking about white women and racism with a white woman and it suddenly goes against what she believes about racism or about how she feels about herself as a white woman, she suddenly gets all defensive. It's that thing of um, a reaction when our identity or who we are is like confronted. It's kind of a knee-jerk reaction some people have. I didn't explain that very well and I apologize. No, I totally get it. It's like when I was in theory class in grad school people would get defensive really easily. And our teacher, you know, the amazing Sarah Santillis would just say like, this is not a safe space. Like, and it's okay to change your feelings at any moment. I think people have a really hard time with the, um, the evolution of discovering possibly that something they, they live or believe or do is quote unquote wrong or problematic and it's a hard evolution to go from that to, oh, I understand why it's because you don't want you don't want to be that person that has to recant your joke about the fire marshal in Portland like that's embarrassing and it hurts your I don't know, like your inner di- your yourself, your inner dialogue, your and and you would feel I have a guilt complex. So like if I made that joke and found out that I hurt the feelings of all the people of color in the audience, I would just feel devastated. I wouldn't be able to get over it very easily because I keep a list in my head of all the things I've ever messed up on, which is it, it very much interests all the therapists I've ever met. But um, 
it would it, it's hard to change that I think and I, I totally get what you're saying like it's that's why I've been so interested in the idea of male fragility because people the world over have a hard time changing their minds or not being defensive when they're told they're wrong but then men who have been raised under a patriarchal umbrella have also been taught to not have emotional free like feel feelings in a response to that and so like instead of being like I'm so upset that this girl rejected me for a date a, that specific man would go and mass shoot up a theater which has happened and it's a really interesting psychological process that I don't know enough about to speak of but I'm researching it right now I've been definitely interested in reaching out more and looking into it because especially in the political political climate that we have today, there's a lot of these people that are saying, oh, Trump is president now, get over it. And a lot of us that are on the opposite end are going, well, you guys didn't exactly act very logical or very okay with Obama being president eight years ago. So, hi. <laughs> this, is, this is kind of the thing we're upset about. We have a right to be upset about it. And it's just interesting to see the idea of talking to people and trying to have this discourse with them and get them feeling like there's a shutdown based on this reaction that uh, we're describing here, this defensive um, knee-jerk reaction that people have. Yeah, it's almost like like the, I don't know, the idea I brought up before about like when people say feminist and it makes other people bristle, like you need a new word instead so people don't bristle so much. It's like we need to find uh, a solution to those feelings so you don't, I mean, I guess a therapist would say like feelings aren't the truth you know, or, or the, the, the truth forever, like let that person have their knee jerk reaction, but then figure out how to pick up the pieces to move forward. So then it's not so divided all the time. I don't know. It's, it's a really, it, there's so many paradoxes in there. I think, how do you, you know, if the barber cuts everyone in town's hair, who cuts the barber's hair? Mm-hmm. Well, it's I, I wonder about. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I wonder about the what you what you said about the word feminism and how we need a new word. I don't know that I totally agree, but I'm curious as to why you think we need one. Oh, so like I disagree with myself in that too. I it's like a split. Like the word feminism bristles people. Like back home in Missouri, when people would find out I was a feminist. And I already had short hair, so it was like I had short hair, so I was automatically a lesbian in public because that's <laughs> what that means to people. But when you start talking about feminist things or refer to yourself as a feminist, I would have people who I went to college with who were my same age who I was friends with that would just say, well, like, Katie, like, why do you hate men? Because mm-hmm. they, they thought that's what feminism was. And I'd be like, I don't hate men. Like, you can talk to my partner. I, I'm pretty fond of men and like I'm pretty fond of like learning about them and uh, learning how to help them to I don't know feel better 
while we're under this patriarchy. So like I agree and disagree with myself. We need a new word. We either need a new word that won't bristle people or we need to re-educate that actually no feminism is just the idea of X, Y, Z and not I hate men. I'm not going to shave my legs, you know. But I think it's kind of good. I mean, this is a very controversial statement, but I think it's kind of good that <laughs> um, that feminism incites that sort of response because it's it's not about hating men and being able to explain that is easy and fine. But I think it it, it elicits that response because it's a challenge to a really long-standing structure. And no, so, even if we had a different word, I think it would do the same thing. No, totally. That's why I like agree and disagree with myself because it's like mm-hmm. calling for a new word is like erasing all history and denying why this word exists and why it's important. It's kind of the easy way out. And then also like the rebel in me is like, just make people fucking deal with it. If they don't like that word, like discuss why and isn't that your job? And so mm-hmm. like when I say that, I think I was using that as a bad example, but I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, I just brought that up because I've met a lot of people that are like, we should rename this or come up with a new, a new phrase. But it's, it's like bell hooks says um, when she calls, Oh gosh, I'm going to butcher this quote. But when she says like the patriarchal, gosh, it's this huge, huge thing that she calls the system, you know, it's like the white hegemonic patriarchy mm-hmm. X, Y, Z. And she's like, usually people laugh when I say that. And I can't understand why, because that's what it is. And she says, laughter is kind of uh, the patriarchy winning in that, or like your discomfort is it winning a little bit. It's like you making it okay. Mm-hmm. And so like, maybe we should, we should use these terms to just make everyone uncomfortable because uncomfortability makes good comedy and good conversation. It might be a nice place to stop. I'm going to agree because my, my throat's given out a little bit, but it's been so much fun talking to everybody. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. I did really enjoy this too. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks Danielle and Ashley. Thanks for coming. Yeah, of, of course. course. I hope you feel better. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I work with kids, so it's it's my time. <laughs> but, okay, I definitely we, know that feeling. Right. So, Danny, do we just should we just all say bye and click out or what, what? that? I'm so curious what another option might be. Oh, I don't know. I was just thinking, like, you know, and because, like, whenever my mom and I Skype, it's always like, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. And then we count down from three, and we all hang up at the same time, so then there's nobody's hanging up on anybody else. Well, let's count down from three, then. <laughs> okay. Bye, you guys. Bye, guys. Bye. Three, three, three two, two, one. One.